This particular audience was an ideological home-filled crowd for me too because the event was focused on the moral virtues of free enterprise. While I am not a member of either political party, free enterprise is something I deeply believe in. I was the only non-politician on the schedule and arriving a little early, I listened to a few of the other speakers before I went on. One after another told the audience that they were right and the opposing political side was wrong. By the time I went on stage, the crowd was pretty fired up. My speech was about how people naturally perceive conservatives and liberals in America today. I made the point that liberals are widely considered to be compassionate, empathetic, and that conservatives should work to earn this reputation as well. After the speech, a woman in the audience came up to me and she was clearly none too happy with my comments. I thought she was going to criticize my assertion that conservatives are not thought to be as compassionate as liberals. Instead, she told me that I was being too nice to liberals. They are not compassionate and empathetic. She said they are stupid and evil. She argued that as a public figure, I was obliged to say so plainly because it's the truth. At that moment, my thoughts went to Seattle. That's where I grew up. While my own politics tend to more center-right, Seattle is arguably the most politically liberal place in the United States. My father was a college professor, my mother was an artist. Professors and artists in Seattle, what do you think their policies were? So when the woman in New Hampshire said that liberals are stupid and evil, she wasn't talking about me, but she was talking about my family. Without meaning to, she was effectively presenting me with a choice, my loved ones or my ideology. Either I admit that those whom I disagree with politically, including people I love, are stupid and evil, or I renounce my ideas and credibility as a public figure. Love or ideology, choose. Have you been subjected to a similar choice? Have you been told by a newspaper pundit, a politician, a college professor, or a television host that your friends, family, and neighbors on the other side are knaves and fools, implying that if you have any integrity, you must stand up to them or leave them behind? That people with a different perspective hate our country and must be completely destroyed? That if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention, that kindness to your ideological foes is tantamount to weakness? Whether your policies are on the left, right, or center, most likely you have, and it might just be affecting your life. For example, a January 2017 Reuters poll found that one in six Americans had stopped talking to a family member or close friend because of the 2016 election. A far bigger share of the population has sorted social, social life along ideological lines over the past few years by avoiding the places where people disagree with them. Curating their news, the places where people disagree with them, curating their social media to weed out opposing viewpoints, and seeking out the spaces from college campuses to workplaces where they find the most ideological compatriots. And I end with this. We need national healing. 
every bit as much as economic growth. But what are we getting, but what we are getting instead from many of our leaders in politics, media, entertainment, and academia? Across the political spectrum, people in positions of power and influence are setting us against one another. They tell us our neighbors who disagree with us politically are ruining our country. That ideological differences aren't a matter of difference of opinion, but reflect moral turpitude. That our side must utterly vanquish the other, even if it leaves our neighbors without a voice. In the very moment in which America most needs to come together, in the early decades of what, for the good of the world, should be a new American century, we are being torn apart thoughtlessly and needlessly. We are living in a culture of contempt. We need to fight back, but how? This is an excerpt from a book I'm reading called Love Your Enemies by Arthur C. Brooks, New York Times bestselling author. And the subtext is how decent people can save America from the culture of contempt. He ends the excerpt asking the question, how? How do we help a country that is so divided come together? Now, if you're paying attention to the cultural framework, you'll see this, this category, these, these polarizing categories. It's doing versus believing. You see, the, the, the answer that we're seeing happen, and it's not all bad, but this is the answer nonetheless, is what's happening culturally is everyone is trying to do something, but at the same time arguing over what they believe. People are, are doing whatever. They're doing a lot of stuff, but some people haven't really thought what do they truly believe and if what they believe is actually informing what they're doing. So we got to do something. Let's just, I'm going to march. I'm protesting. I'm going to vote. I'm going to do this. But haven't really thought about, okay, what do I actually believe about what's happening? What we see in culture is what I've called historically in this mini-series, Stay Balanced, compliance. You agree to follow suit. And this is not the compliance on just one side. It's both sides. Everyone wants you to comply with what they think. It's the act of conforming, acquiescing, or yielding to a position. It's a tendency, a compliance is a, a tendency to yield readily to others, especially in a weak and subservient way. These are the dictionary definitions of the word. Compliance is about conformity and accordance with other people. And there's this idea in the culture that if you don't comply, even if you're silence, silence is compliance. You've seen signs at marches, silence is compliance. What they're saying is if you're not saying what I'm saying, then you are part of the problem. That is a cultural distinction. There's a lot of doing but then people are arguing over what they're believing. But believing 
What I believe should inform what I do. I shouldn't do stuff and then figure out what I believe. Because I might come back and realize, I don't think I actually believe this. So now I regret doing this, and I did it because everyone else was doing it. You see, biblically, that's called fear of man. But that's not today's sermon. In these six messages, this is Stay Balanced, part six. I've laid out, Mike and I both have thought through this, have laid out a different way out, which we think is more biblical. That's not compliance, but it's inheritance. See, compliance agrees to follow, but inheritance agrees to be a steward. We don't follow recklessly, we steward responsibility. See, when you inherit, inheritance is to take or receive property by succession or will as an heir to inherit like the family business. To receive as if succession from predecessors. So when you hear people say the problems with the new government was inherited from its predecessor. To receive as one's portion, to come into possession of. But when the Bible uses it biblically, it kind of has this meaning too. Any piece of property that passes by law to an heir on the death of the owner. So there's this sense where inheritance is about responsibility. It's I've inherited something and now I'm responsible to take care of it, to watch it. Now, I'm not going to reiterate what I've said. I've talked about this in five sermons of mine previous to this. This is the last sermon of this miniseries. I'm not going to reiterate all that has been set up to this point. But there is this reality that we are called as people, we know that we've inherited sin from Adam and Eve. We know that we're co-heirs in Christ. We've inherited the blessings of Christ. Should we persevere to the end? This inheritance is not a foreign biblical concept, but it is one foreign among Christians who profess to believe biblically. We looked at Josiah's covenant in both 2 Kings 22 and 2 Chronicles 34 to figure out what is the way out of this left versus right Social justice warrior versus white privilege. What is the way out of this? How do believers, regardless of your political affiliation, how do we respond to the pressure on both sides to comply? When we looked at Josiah and what happened to him, and you can hear that last week's messages and the two or three prior to that. I'm not going to reiterate. But Josiah ends with making a covenant to the Lord. He inherited, Josiah found out that he inherited the judgment from God as a result of the sins of people that lived before him. And I posed this as a reality in this series, is that if you are a Christian today, regardless of your race, ethnicity, if you are a Christian in America, then you have inherited the Christianity that has been in America since America began. And so whatever the historical narrative is, we've inherited that. Very much so like I'm a pastor. When people introduce me to their friends as a pastor, if they have a bad experience with pastors, then I automatically inherit that. I've watched people go from A to find out I'm a pastor to, to not smile 
and put their hand down. Now, it could be I'm a big, ugly dude. And that's all right. I've dealt with that. But most times it's just, oh, you're a pastor? Oh, you're one of those. So whatever their experience of pastors is, I've inherited. Whatever the negative experience is, I've inherited. If you're a Christian, you have inherited a negative history in the American church. Not all bad, but definitely not one that we can be like, yes. And so here we are. So how do we survive in this climate? We make a covenant like Josiah did. We saw last week that maturity biblically is first personal, then it's communal, and then it plays out national if you have that kind of platform. Josiah was a king, but he first dealt with himself. At age 16, Josiah becomes a believer. At age 20, he starts to affect. So for four years, he's just growing personally. Then he goes nationally and communally and starts tearing down the idolatry that was in Israel. And then at 26, he hears the book of Deuteronomy. They find the book of the law and they read it. And then he makes a covenant before the Lord, first himself and then the rest of the people make this covenant. We read this in in 2 Chronicles 34, verses 31 and 32. It says this, then the king stood at his post and made a covenant in the Lord's presence to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, his decrees, and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul in order to carry out the words of the covenant written in this book, which was Deuteronomy. He had all those present in Jerusalem, and Benjamin agreed to it. So all the inhabitants of Jerusalem carried out the covenant of God, the God of their ancestors. So Josiah realizes, whoa, we're in trouble because we've inherited God's judgment and, and, and patterns of disobedience from people who were supposed to be God's people. I think we can make the same claim that if you're an American Christian, we've inherited a gospel presentation and demonstration that has allowed for crimes against humanity that we're still paying the consequences for today. Now, a covenant is just simply an agreement between one or two parties in which one or both make promises under oath to perform or refrain from certain actions. So Josiah makes a covenant. Now, keep in mind, Josiah is not Jesus. So as much as the Bible describes him as a man who didn't go from to left or right, he wasn't perfect. So his making a covenant Practically, he sinned against that covenant that he made, but he still made it. Only Jesus was perfect. He still made this promise to obey the law of God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. So today, we're going to focus on what does the covenant renewal look like today? What does that look like for us today, we're Christians. We're not in a nation that belongs to God with 10 commandments that we all obey and we're scattered all over the place. There's people in this room and I would assume that everyone in here is a believer, but I don't know. I would assume that everyone watching is a believer because what would you watch church for on a Sunday morning if you don't believe? You could be sleeping. I would say you could be watching the game, but ain't no games on right now. So maybe that's why you're watching. Nonetheless, God brought you here this morning. Welcome. 
we're going to talk about covenant renewal. Now, I ended last week's message asking three questions that I asked of the Josiah passage of 2 Chronicles 34. And we're going to look at those questions again in greater detail. Last week, I asked this, why should we make a covenant? And I read from Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. This morning, we're just going to read just three of those verses, the last three, from, starting from verse 11. Why should we make a covenant with God? Especially since, don't we already believe? A covenant is not, okay, I, I believe in you. A covenant is essentially saying, Lord, I want to reorient my thinking, my decisions, and my life around what your word says, because I think I may have gotten off balance. So we're trying to stay balanced, not be off balance. There's too much imbalance in the church. I'm talking about the world, I'm talking about the church. So a covenant is just saying, okay, I need a recalibration. I need to reset. So why do we do that? Well, because Ephesians 1 tells us this, beginning in verse 11. In him we have also received an inheritance. There it is, inheritance. Because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. So that he who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you were also seated with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. The phrase in this verse that is most widely overlooked, and I would say the theme in the Bible among professing Christians today that I believe is the most widely overlooked of the last five words of this verse, to the praise of his glory. I said last week that we've forgotten. We've forgotten that what we're here for is for God's glory. And this is what Josiah grieved over. You see, he didn't do, the Bible didn't say that he was responsible for what he inherited. He grieved over the fact that he inherited a judgment from God because he inherited a lack of reverence for the glory of God that allowed people to sin recklessly, even though they professed to be believers. I would say, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, we have inherited the same thing. We're a culture of Christianity where people live recklessly because God's glory is not what's at the center of many believers' minds. It's just not. We're in church today, so let's not lie today. It's just not. I'm guilty of it too. It's just not my primary focus. You see, Josiah grieved over the sins of, against God, but we often grieve over the sins against us. See, biblical maturity grieves over the fact that God is not being glorified among those who profess to believe in him. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, we've, this is a very popular verse. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. And we know that to be true. But I think most people focus on the eating or drinking or whatever you do, the liberty that comes with the passage, not the motive. You see, the liberty is attached to the motive in this passage. So it's not just whatever you do or whatever you eat or drink, it's you give glory to God. That's the motive. That's the motive. 
See, Christianity has lost its motive and not the religion, but the people who profess to believe in it have lost the motive. The motive of God's glory is what we see being defamed. To understand the why and what of covenant renewal for us, we have to change the paradigm to caring about God's glory being disrespected above all else. And this is going to take work because we just don't think that way. American Christianity does not set itself up that way. And there might be Christianity all over the world. I can't speak to that because I'm here. We just don't have that paradigm shift. So compromise is nothing. People come to churches like it's a social contract. I'm coming to hang with my buddies. Hang with them out there. When you come here, it's because you want to hang with God. And you want to hang with people that want to hang with God. His glory is your motive. This is why when you come into a church, you pay attention. You're not on your phone and talking and joking with your buddies. Do that out there because in here, God's glory is at stake. God's word is being proclaimed. And even if I'm fallible, I'm saying something that God said for you and I to listen to and grow from. Then we take that and make that part of our motive. But we be here playing around and wonder why we're not mature. Oh, man, I'm, this is my last sermon. People are going to be mad today. I'm going hard, y'all. This is my last one for a month. Y'all got to hear me for a month. First Corinthians says, whether you eat or drink or do whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God, for the glory of God. When you understand that everything, even your own sin, is against the glory of God, you talk like David did in Psalm 51. When David said this, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Listen to this verse four against you and you alone. I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. That's not true. David sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Joab, the general who made him go to the front line so he could be killed because he got his, another man's wife pregnant. He sinned against all the men in the army who may have liked Uriah. They might have been his buddies and wondered why they were sending him to the front lines, the most dangerous part, so he could be killed. He sinned against the family of Uriah and all the people who lost their loved one because of his selfishness. He sinned against the whole nation of Israel, but he's mature enough to understand that the glory of God has been defamed by his sin. And ultimately, all sin is vertical before it's ever horizontal. Yeah. So he says against you and you only have I sinned. He's not speaking in, in error. He's speaking in biblical reality, stemming from biblical maturity. He understands the glory of God. I've sinned against that. Your glory, Lord. Your person, your presence. This is, this is uniquely different from what we see happening in the church. The outrage in the church today is not over God's glory. It's over Christian liberty and theopolitical affiliation. It's amazing to me how one side will say that you're, you're, you're engaging in secular ideologies calling you cultural Marxism, social justice warrior, all these things. And then you use the same definitions and terms towards those people from the secular ideology. 
The outrage in the church is not over God's glory. It's over theological loyalty. Why should we make a covenant? Because God has given us all these promises and blessings in Jesus Christ, and we're supposed to be motivated to do things for God's glory. That's supposed to help us resist sin. That's supposed to, that's the reason why we sing when we're struggling. It's the reason why we pray when we don't want to. It's the reason why we fight when no one else would even be around to see if we didn't. So when we lose sight of that, then not only do we lose sight of doing this for God's glory, we lose sight of recognizing that other people are made in God's image to give him glory. And when we don't live like that, it's totally opposite of the way Jesus said we're supposed to live that he prayed for in John 17. So when Romans 2.24 says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, that wasn't just for the Jews in Romans chapter 2. That can happen in any culture where Christians are more like the culture than like Christ. We should make a covenant because of what God has done for us and who God is to us. Now, we all agree with this. I'm not talking about mental assent, though. So then what is the covenant? Well, last week I read Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. And Jesus said this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Sounds easy enough. Probably the most two difficult commands ever. Because our hearts are not positioned that way. I said this a long time ago in a sermon. You know, so Adonai moved in when we became believers, but Adam didn't move out. So what we have is this, this challenge within us, and that's what, that's, what, that's what makes the battle. That's what makes temptation happen, because Adonai moved and the spirit came in. But the satanic part of us didn't move out. Seems simple enough, but it's not. Have you ever asked her why? Why are the two greatest commands, all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands? Love God and love your neighbor. Why are those the commands? God knows that's almost impossible for us. It's almost as if God is playing a game with humanity, but this isn't a chess game. God doesn't Look at the world and be like, oh, okay, y'all doing this? All right, then go ahead and do that. Okay, love your neighbor as yourself. How about that one? We have to remember something about God. If your theology and your reality come together, then you have to remember something significant. God knew what was going to happen before anything happened, right? He knew this Things were going to happen. Like he, in Genesis 3.15, when he told Satan, this woman will give birth to a seed and he will crush your head 
you will crush his heel. From that moment on, the whole story of the Bible is who is the seed that's going to crush the serpent's head. The whole Bible is hinging on that until John 12 and Jesus acknowledges that he is the one that's going to do that. But before all of this even happened, God knew that God was going to become a human being. Before he gave the law, he knew that he was going to become a human being. God knew that Christ would embody the reality of being God and then being man. He knew that. So this idea, this command of loving the Lord your God with all your heart and loving man as yourself is intentional because God knew that God was going to become a man. Jesus completes the two greatest commandments by doing it and being it. This is what we have to really grasp. The God that you love in the heavens became the neighbor that you love as a human. God became our neighbor. He embodies both of them. You see, you cannot love God who loves and made man if you don't love man whom God made himself become. And that's the rub. You can't love God who loves and made man if you don't love man whom God made himself become. Because God was up there in the heavens, but now he becomes a human being. He becomes our neighbor. And he becomes a man because he loves man. So God is saying, fundamentally, a part of who I am is a lover of man. So much so, I'm going to become one. He doesn't do this for any, anything else, any other creation. In fact, Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 tells us this. Now, since the children, meaning us, have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared the knees so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. So God didn't become an angel. He doesn't become an animal. As much as we prize the life of animals more than people, God didn't become an animal. That's a different message. He didn't become an animal. He became a person. He became just like us. So the God who created the image became the image. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. So this is telling us that Jesus, God, the son, the creator of the image, made himself an image bearer to bear the wrath for some image bearers because that wrath is unbearable for every image bearer. This is a significant truth. You cannot, you cannot love God who loves man if you don't love man whom God made himself become. 
by being God and then being a neighbor. He said, you have to love every part of who I am to believe in me. And so humanity becomes a part of who God is. This is why 1 John 4.20, I believe, says this. Look, if anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. This is the scriptures, not me. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, take into consideration for a moment that in the Ten Commandments, this idea that God said from his own mouth, do not make an, make an image of me in any way, shape, or form. No one's going to know what I look like. He told Moses, man can't see me face to face and live. So God makes it clear from the beginning, I'm not an image that you can make. Don't make one for me. I am, I am. There is no image for that. I created everything. You can't make an image of me. You can't even see me face to face. That same God becomes an image and lets many people see him. So that God who said, no one will know what I look like or see me face to face, became a man so people could see him face to face. Why? Because he loves, man, he loves people. So God is not pleased, particularly when believers are angry at believers. <laughs> Where people are angry at people, Christians are angry at each other over voting for unregenerate men and women to make decisions for them to govern their well-being. <laughs> So I'll be more favorable to people who don't even have the conviction to glorify God in their heart. I'll be adamant about them and be angry at the people who do have the conviction, who may even go to my church and believe what I believe, who I sing with. But because we disagree on unregenerate people who are going to govern us, that's enough to say, I can't be with you. That displeases God. And if not, please inform me from the scriptures where I'm off. You cannot love God who made man if you don't love man whom God made himself become. To truly love Christ, we have to love all that he is. And part of all that he is is man. He comes back from the dead and tells Thomas, look at the holes in my hands. Put your finger in them. Look at my side. This is me. In Revelation, John says he looks like it looks like a lamb that had been slain. So even in this eternal revelatory glory, this picture of Jesus, he still has on him the marks that he had as a human being. Yeah. Humanity is forever a part of God's glory and forever a part of who God is. This is why Jesus says, love your enemies. Because he did. 
We are not just God's glory in creation and that he created us. We're also his glory in imitation. See, Jesus becoming a man theologically is called the incarnation or hypostatic union. But we we use incarnation because it rhymes with imitation and creation. And, you know, I like to play with the words a little bit. So we don't just glory in creation. We don't we glory in his imitation. And so what he does, he repeats the process of incarnation. So God becomes a human being. And says, die for many human beings. And then Jesus says, here's the spirit. God comes in human beings and says, now live to die to serve others. The same process that happened for Jesus is in every believer. Not with the same significance, but an imitation. We have God in us that teaches us to die to self the way Jesus died to self for us. This is why he says you love one another, those who are unbelievers, and especially those who are believers. Because we know what we know to be true. So how do we keep the covenant? Last week, we looked at two verses, Matthew 7, 12. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Galatians 6, 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. It's God's words, not mine. Now, both of these verses start with a Therefore. So let's read these in fuller context to understand exactly what he's saying we have to do to make a covenant and keep it with him. So Matthew 7, let's back up to verse 7. He says this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. That's a fuller context. So then what must we believe to make this covenant. Well, first, we have to believe that God loves us enough to give good gifts to us, even though we are evil. <laughs> Jesus' words. He said, if you who are evil, that's something you don't get caught off of. I love it when, when Jesus said about Herod, he said, go tell that fox. It still, still makes me laugh every time I come across that. Jesus called him a fox. He says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, if you're evil, then how can the father who is wholly good not give good gifts as well? And he's right. I'm evil as can be. By his grace, not as evil as I was. I give good gifts to my kids all the time. I love it. One of the highlights of my life is to my kids that ask for something. I say, yeah, let's go. My son asked to go to New York City for his nine-year-old birthday. I said, New York City, son? He said, man, what do you, you think we're working with over here? <laughs> like we were just going to just fly in with a helicopter and go to drive up there. It was, it, my son was born in December. 
And guess what? We were in New York City for three days. Me, my three boys, and my buddy Ant and his son Jaden. We had a great time. The Lord is saying, what is, you do that for your kids and you're evil. So why would I not give good to those who ask of it from me? Therefore, whatever you want others to do, do also the same for them. So we have to believe that God loves us enough to give us good gifts even though we're evil. And we have to believe that people being evil doesn't deter us from loving and giving good gifts to them. That's right. See, this is countercultural for us because we don't mind doing stuff for people we bang with, for the homies. I don't mind doing, I'll give, I'll give my man anything on my back. Anything. But I don't always feel that way about other people, though. Now, again, we have to use wisdom and discernment. But we have to believe that people being evil does not deter God from loving and giving good things to them, namely us. So it should not deter us from doing good things to those who are also evil. And we have to believe that this obeys the law of God in significant ways. He said, for this is the law and the prophets, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So what must we do then? So that's, when we, that's what we must believe. What must we do? We have to process the good that God has done for us and what imitating him looks like to others, remembering that it glorifies God to do good to evildoers. So how do we do that? We have to sit down and really take some time. I'm not talking about a couple of hours. I'm talking about maybe a couple of days, weeks, months. And we need to ask ourselves, how do we want to be treated by others? How do we want to be treated by others? Based on God giving good gifts to us, what does it look like to give good gifts to others? And, this was, and what I love is that he said, look, he could have said, look, because I've done this for you, do it to them. And you could be like, well, dang, I don't, you know. I don't got the gifts you got. You God, you can do anything. Like, I don't got the kind of capacity you got. Do I get this dude $5 because he's asking for it right now? He's asked every other person in front of me. So you know what he says? He says, whatever you wish others would do for you, in light of God giving you and I good gifts, even though we're evil, whatever we wish others would do for us, do also to them. So he's expecting us to stop and say, okay, what is the good that I want other people to do for me? Now, this isn't about personal personality. This is about biblical morality. And you guys say that because we still have Adam and I moved in, but Adam didn't move out, right? So you'll ask, somebody will be like, well, I don't want no, I don't want to be bothered, so I don't want nobody to bother me. And I'm applying the verse. <laughs> That's not what he's talking about. And you know it's a couple people in here that'd be off that too. That's not what he's saying. He's not talking about my personality. He's talking about biblical morality. How does God relate to me? How do I want others to relate to me? What do I want? You know what? I want to be treated kindly. I want the benefit of the doubt when I'm wrong. I want grace when I sin, and I don't want people to self-righteously judge me. I don't want people to talk to me in tones of voices that are rude and are belittling to me. I, I, 
I just sometimes I'm lonely. I just want to be able to hang out with people. I want to feel free to call people up and say, hey, can you do that? I want, you know, the, we have to think about what are those things that we want? And then God says, make sure you do it to other people. That's amazing to me that God would say, okay, I do all this stuff for you, but here's how you process how to do it for others. What do you want people to do to you? That's a big deal. But it's hard. And part of the reason why it's hard is because we don't give enough thought to it. The only time we think about it is when people don't do something else we like. Then we realize, now don't talk to me in that tone of voice. That's when it all happens, when somebody does something to us we don't like, then we got a quick drop-down menu of all the stuff that you need to click on to find out what's going on for real. <laughs> We're talking in 21st century terms. Jesus did agriculture. We're doing technology. That's when we know, right? When you do something wrong, that's when I know what I want. But apart from that, when do I give thought to say, how do I really want? We'll spend more time reading and praying and treat people nasty. What good is reading and praying if we're just going to sin against people as soon as we get around them? That just, sometimes, I ain't saying don't read, don't pray. I'm just saying also think about this. We got to give thought. This is what I've been thinking about this the last couple of weeks. This is where the state balance is coming from for me. Listen, I'm not a balanced dude. I'm an old gangster. Sometimes people forget who I am. Like, this stuff doesn't come naturally for me. This isn't like stay balanced because I'm just like, I'm, a, I'm, I'm black, black. Like, I take things personal, too. When things happen in the culture, my heart, my visceral response is not the one I present on Sunday. I'm training myself by the word of God and by what he's done and who he is and what he calls me to do so that I come here with a different perspective than I initially feel. Do not make any mistake about what's going on here. This is as difficult for me as for anybody. I'm, I'm confrontational by his creation. And it's like, I got to, but you know who I got to be the most confrontational towards? Me. He didn't make me to be confrontational towards everybody else but me. He made me to be confrontational towards me and figure out how do I confront everyone else. I think it's called take the log out of your own eye or something like that in the scriptures. We have to ask ourselves, this is what I've been asking myself. How do I want others to treat me? And so it's affecting the way I respond. I ask a lot more questions. I try to put fires out online. People are so offended. You can post something that you really believe and somebody will come and give it. What about this? Well, what about it? What about it? What about it? Josh sometimes will hit me. He'll see something on Facebook and be like, man, these people wild. Because I'll post something and he'll see all this attack. And, just, and, I, and, and, and sometimes in text, you can't always tell someone's tone. So it can appear like you're mad, but sometimes I'm like, hey, look, bro, uh, this is my wall, and I'm allowed to put whatever I want on my wall. I understand this is Facebook, and you can comment, but I don't need to answer to you or, def or explain myself. I post what I posted, and if you don't like it, that's cool. You can go on your Facebook wall and talk all about how much you don't like what people are posting. That's fine. I'm not going to argue over stuff like that. Like, this is what's happening, though. Our digital nervous systems are a wreck. When I was a kid, I never thought, man, I need to take a break from Atari and stuff like that because I'm, <laughs> now I'm dating myself now. Some of us know about Atari, right? Some of y'all don't know nothing about no Atari, right? I know about that. That little joystick with the red button, I know about that. Y'all don't know about that. 
I know about ColecoVision. <laughs> Old enough to know. Scripture said there's wisdom that comes with age. But nowadays, people are like, hey, listen, guys, I got to take a break from Facebook. Why? Because there's so much animosity. And most of the people that I hear say that are believers. So most of the people that follow them are, guess what? Believers. So when they say I got to take a, a, a break from Facebook, I got to take a break from believers. What have we become? We have to ask, how do we want to be treated by others? We need to give some time to this. I'm not talking about an hour and like, okay, Lord, this is it. I'm talking about real. I'm talking about D groups in our church need to have a conversation within this D group. Y'all need to meet on Wednesday night and be like, all right, let's talk through this. How do we, do we even practice this among one another? That might compel y'all to take a break in August. Hopefully not. What? How do we want others to treat us? Is what God said. Consider. And he said, by doing this, you fulfill the law and the prophets. If you really want to grow in loving others, then think about what you want, how you want them to treat you, and then do the same. That's what God is saying. That is really not complicated. What's complicated is I just don't want to do that. I'd rather have the Lord just zap me. Isn't it funny when, he, when you pray like, Lord, help me be more loving, and then you get, into, you get into a serious situation with somebody? Somebody spews nothing but hatred towards you. You know why? Because when we pray, Lord, help us be more loving, we're asking the Lord to zap us so that it becomes easy. And the Lord is saying, nah, to be loving, I'm going to have you learn the way I do, have people sin against you, and then you act within the grace that I've given you to be loving towards them. That's what he said, do. And sometimes it feels like it's you doing it. But, it, but if your theology and your reality meet, you know from Ephesians 2 that you wouldn't even desire to do it unless the spirit was it, that was in you was compelling you to do it. Yeah. So even if it feels like it's just you, the fact that you have a desire to do it and at times do it comes from the spirit that's in you. The Lord never said when you obey me, it's going to feel like a menu, you know. <laughs> you know how I'd be like the last dragon when a dude just gets all glowed up and it's like this, you know, it's just all of a sudden it's like this. And it's like the matrix. And all of a sudden now we can just see every bullet. And we can see every sinful temptation and we just stop and be like, yeah, whatever lust. Yeah, whatever fear of man. I got you unloving. We just act like we're supposed to be the matrix of something when you're in the spirit. It's like, nah. Nah. That's not the part of the movie that it looks like. You know what the part of the movie it looks like? When, when, Mr. S when, when he came down the steps, Mrs. Smith, and he was on the phone and he hung the phone up. And then they were like, what is he doing? And then Neo and then Morpheus was like, he's starting to believe. And that's when he was like, let's go. Let's get it. Let's work. Let's fight. That's the Christian struggle. It's not wait till God zaps me and then I'll love everybody. God says, I already zapped you. I already zapped you, my son and daughter. We've already been zapped. Listen, it's one thing to get medication. It's another thing to take it. Galatians, what must we do? Galatians, six. I'm indicting all of us. Oh, me too. I'm, I'm, I'm included. I'm, this is, I'm, not, I'm not coming down the mountain with two stone tablets. This is what I'm working towards. Galatians six. We read seven, seven, ten. We're going to read the context. Let's back up to verse seven. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever person sows, he will also reap. 
Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life from the spirit. That's an interesting verse. So if you look at the church landscape, what do you think we've been sowing to? I'm going to let y'all answer that. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time. The proper time is defined by God, not us. We will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. So what must we believe to apply this? We have to believe that actions and habits have eternal consequences. They have consequences. God said, look, I'm not mocked. In other words, he said, look, don't be deceived. Nobody's fooling me. You may fool your pastor. You may fool yourself. You may fool your D group and everybody else. But nobody's fooling me. If you are sowing to the flesh, that's what the fruit is going to come up. You're going to reap it. You sow into the flesh. You're going to reap it. If you sow to the spirit, you're going to reap it. In other words, you're going to get reward from it. It's going to become a part of who you are. You sow to the flesh, you're going to reap destruction. You sow to the spirit, it's going, you're going to reap eternal life. It's going to bear fruit. Then he says not to get tired of doing good. So, so we have to believe that habits, actions have eternal consequences. We have to also believe that God is not mocked. Grace doesn't lower the standards of holiness. It forgives us for not keeping it. And then it requires us and empowers us to go after it. Think, remember we talked about God's judgment, right? Sometimes God's judgment can be a long time coming. And people just keep doing whatever. Remember Noah? It was like, man, what you building? Man, a flood's coming here. Whatever happened. What you mean the flood had never rained in our life? Man, you wild. Until all of a sudden that thunderstorm sounded. We heard a couple days ago. <laughs> then, it was, then it was too late. Sons and daughters, it's going to be too late one day. We don't have time beyond time beyond time. It's going to be too late. This virus, if nothing else, has been making it clear that God sovereignly can change our life just by a virus. And they started off with young people aren't getting it. Young people have gotten it and have died from this thing. You don't know how much time you got. Not anymore. The arrogance of autonomy is over. Because you just don't know. I think this virus, if, for no, if nothing else, I think it's a part of judgment. But if nothing else, for believers, it's a warning. Get focused. Be sober-minded. We also have to believe that there are rewards from him for persevering to do good. Some of us, some of us are just frustrated. We're just tired. We're just frustrated. We're tired of people. Just frustrated, tired of all this stuff. And sometimes we allow our being tired of things to justify our being sinful at the things we're tired of. I do it, you do it. If you don't, then you, you preach next Sunday. <laughs> it's just a reality for us, right? We just get it, we get tired. 
Even Jesus was sitting there talking to the woman at the well, said he was exhausted. That's amazing to me, the God who, that's a different message. He's tired. We're tired. And sometimes we can just justify not doing good because we're tired. Or if you look at the verse specifically, let us not get tired, verse 9, for doing good, of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we do not give up. If you look at the verse and take it out exactly what the verse is saying, some of us are tired because there's no good coming out of it that we want. Where's the good at? Like, where's the, where's the good? Where's the blessing? I'm trying to do good, Lord. When am I going to get married? I'm trying to do good, Lord. When am I going to get the job that I need? When am I going to get fill in the blank? And, we, and when we don't see the good, we get tired of doing good. So now it's like, man, I'm, I'm tired of loving people that don't love me back. The Lord never said people would love us back. He said in Romans 12, 18, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He didn't say people will live peaceably with you. You know why? Because he told us in John 15, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. No servant is greater than his master. If they don't like what I said, they ain't going to like it when you say it. That's what he's saying. They don't like what Jesus said, they ain't going to like when you say what I said. Because we're not saying what we think, and if we do, we're getting it from what he said. So this is why people ain't going, they're not going for it. They're going to be angry at it. There are rewards for persevering to do good. We have to believe that. That sometimes we just don't feel like doing it because we don't see the fruit of it. Where's the good at? Well, he says at the proper time. Not according to what you do, but according to what I see. So what must we do? We have to evaluate our opportunities. Verse 10, it says, therefore, as we have opportunity. Everyone does not have the same opportunities. Some of us have, like, there are opportunities that I have because the Lord has given me a platform a little bit bigger than people in this room or maybe watching on stream. I have other opportunities to speak to churches and talk to leaders and do things. But then there are people who I got friends with that got better, bigger opportunities than me. I don't have the platform that you have. You have a, there are people who have less opportunities, but we all have opportunities. So we're, the Lord is saying, as we have opportunities, so what do we do? Evaluate our opportunities. Right now, many of your opportunities might be online. It might not be interacting with people. Or it might be just being gracious when you do go to the grocery store. Or being extra nice when they drop off your groceries. Whatever the, what are your opportunities I don't know what those are, but when we have opportunities to do good to unbelievers, but especially we have opportunities to do good to believers. Maybe your opportunities are just praying for folks. Maybe you're in a position where you're just not around a lot of people. Okay, fine. I'm not, I'm not going to list out. I purposely am not listing out what opportunities are or how you want others to treat you, because that's something that you and I have to do before the Lord, maybe with the help of others, but I'm not going to give a checklist, because my, what I think might be different than what you think for yourself. Your opportunities might be different from mine, but as we have opportunities, so we're looking for what are the opportunities that I have to demonstrate how good God is? That's what we're looking at, but many of us don't think like that. We want people to do good to us, we're looking for opportunities to have good done to us. But what about opportunities to have good done towards others from us? 
That's what we're after. This is what the Lord is saying. What are my opportunities to do good to believers and unbelievers? This requires thought. This isn't something that you're just going to figure out. This is something that needs to be a regular part of our pursuit of the Lord. This isn't a question that you can just sit down like, okay, I like the message, I agree, let's talk as a family. What are our opportunities? And you make a lesson and that's it. A new one might come tomorrow. We have to think about, okay, who am I around? Where am I around them? What do I say or do when I'm around them? What do I want them to say or do around me? And what do they need? Those are things that we have to think about, and those, the answers could change daily. We need to add as part of our regimen of pursuing the Lord, ask, asking these questions. How do I want others to treat me? I know for me lately, I've been waking up and saying, all right, Lord, how do I want others to treat me today? It's not just time with the Lord. It's, it's, that's a time with the Lord to me as well. Because he commanded that that happen. So I need to think about what does that mean? All right, Lord, what opportunities am I going to have today? I'm definitely going to be online today. I got to post this and that's going to, I might make this post and then people might interact. What, what can I do to, that doesn't mean everything I post is going to be like, oh, let me just say something that I hope everybody likes. I'm going to post, but then when, when interactions happen, it's like, okay, this is my opportunity to, to talk with someone. It's my opportunity to act and the fruit of the Spirit, to kind of de-escalate. I agree with this brother that we live in a culture of contempt. So I need to, because I agree with that, I want to de-escalate to contempt. And I've seen some of that happen. I've seen people post wild stuff, and I've seen people in our church respond that way. And I've never been more grateful and proud of the people who do that, because it's not easy. Because some stuff that gets posted hurts your feelings. And it's like, you know what? Well done. That pleases the Lord. Well done. We got to take this part serious. Now, if you notice, I haven't said, let's go march. Let's be a part of this organization. Let's go to, you know why I haven't done that? Because we got to make sure we know what we believe first. I'm not talking about agree with. I'm talking about believe. When I believe something, I live for it. When I agree with it, I acknowledge it. So I'm not listening to a bunch of stuff that we can do. We can get into the practicals. I mean, Mike has something nice for y'all in August. I recommend y'all stay tuned. You might be surprised at some of the things y'all get into in August, based upon what I know. But I'm not giving practicals because I don't want to do that, because that's not what this is. This is for you and I to go before the Lord and do the necessary work so that when we hear from the Lord, it's not saying, well, Pastor Kurt said this. I'm not, I don't care who you vote for. Listen, I don't have a problem. I'm not anti-voting. I'm anti-arguing over unregenerate, unregenerate men and women with people who are believers. That's what I'm anti. Go vote. I'm not anti-voting. I'm anti-judging other believers because they vote differently than I think politically. I'm anti that because I think God is. I'm not against, any, I'm not, I'm against people putting significant trust in a conscience that is not seared to God's glory. That's what I'm anti I'm not saying don't vote. Go. This is a, this is a social construct. Go vote. Vote to the glory of God. But don't put ultimate hope 
in people so much so. This is how you know your ultimate hope is in people that you vote for than God is if you're angry at people who vote differently from you that believe in God. Yeah. That's how you know. That's how you know. That's one indication. If I'm angry at my brother because you vote differently than me, because you, you think, because you with these policies versus this, now I might have some real question. There might be some real, hey man, can we talk about this? Like, do you agree with this? You might find that like, no, I, most of the people I know that vote on whatever don't agree on everything that each side says. It might be, man, I'm really for this. These are the three things I care about. And the Lord knows our hearts. Look, we got a two-party system. A two-party system that's going to win at least. I mean, I appreciate that people have voted my name, but I ain't going to cause no change in that round. <laughs> it ain't going to happen. They don't want an OG like me in the White House. It'd be a wrap. It'd be curse. <laughs> Obama would, it's not the first black president. I would be. <laughs> That's probably not helpful. That's not helpful. We have a responsibility for covenant renewal. And I think it's incumbent upon us to take this seriously if we're gonna find a real way out. If we don't, we're just gonna fall into the same perpetual habit of distancing ourselves from people that don't agree with us, of judging people for this, doing that, just making it about my insular family, my time with the Lord, 100% vertical, independent, away from everything else. We grieve over the fact that God's glory is being defamed and, and, and believers are a part of it. And so we want to interact and come together to help restore God's glory. Not that he needs us, but he uses us and he commands us to do things in a particular way for his glory. We don't love, we love, we don't love people that agree with us politically. We love people that agree with us biblically. Then we love the people who agree with us or disagree with us biblically, politically. For God's glory and for our good to the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We just have work to do. Thank you that I wasn't, you didn't, you didn't want me to give a whole bunch of lists of things. You just, no, 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 it's not what you told me to do. I believe you wanted me to present the work that needs to be done. We have work to do. We have questions to ask ourselves, questions to ask our loved ones, questions to ask our Deep, our D groups, questions to ask our pastors, questions to ask. We just have questions. I'm not talking about the q and I'm talking about the, the, how do I want others to treat me? And what are the opportunities I have to do good to others? Lord, help that to be a part of our regimen of praying and reading so that it's in our minds. If we don't put it in our minds, it's not going to happen. It won't happen, Lord. My my concern is that we'll agree, but not believe. Help us to, to process, to do the work of processing what we believe to be true from your word and how we obey the law. This is our covenant renewal, to love to, do, to treat others the way we want to be treated is like is the same thing as Josiah agreeing to obey the law. Your word says, you said with your own mouth that this is the law and the prophets. 
So we're, we're, we want to make a covenant before you, Lord, to agree to pursue loving you with all our heart, with all our mind and our strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. And we want to do that by considering, thinking about, meditating on how do we want others to treat us and so that we can treat them that way. And that's not just people that we know and love, but people in grocery store, people that drive past us in the road, people that are at the gas station, wherever we are. And though we also want to think about what opportunities do we have and not give up. Lord, may our giving not be giving up. May we do this for your glory. May your glory be center in our thinking. May your glory be, be more important than my comfort. May your glory be more important than my safety. May your glory be more important than my money. May your glory be more important than everything else. For that glory, for our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Is there a biblical distinction between uh, loving believers versus non-believers? And if so, could you speak to that? Uh, yeah, I think there's a couple. There's a distinction, clearly. I don't know how that plays out practically is a little bit more challenging. But I mean, let's, let's start with John 13. Jesus said, look, a new command I give to you, right? So he wasn't, they already knew what love was. I mean, they had, the, the love was a part of the Old Testament. That was, Jesus summed up the law, love God and love your neighbor. But he says in John 13, a new command I give to you, that you love one another. And the world would know that you, when you love one another, that I'm real. He prays in John 17, verses 22, 23, after praying for the disciples in verses 1 through 19. I mean, John 17 is a up, straight up and down prayer from the Lord. But at verse 20, he prays for future believers people who would respond to the gospel by the message of the apostles. And he says, I pray, Father, that they would be one as you and I are one, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So there's a clear distinction to me where we're loving one another is, is partly evangelistic. It's part of mission. That's part of the missional responsibility because Jesus prayed that the people would see, wow, they genuinely care about each other. Now, we're 2,000 years removed. Our culture is different. It's harder for people to see that. It's harder, but it's still a biblical truth. So that distinction is, is, is really, really clear. Uh, the letters to the churches are, are, are really clear because he's writing to believers. He's writing to people. You look up, look up in your concordance how many times one another is used. It's like 90-something times in the New Testament, depending on your translation, give or take a few. But there's a sense where God's perspective is one another. Like you, you bear the burdens of one another. You carry one another's burdens, Galatians 6, 2. Like that fulfills the law of Christ, he says. 
But then you get to verse 10, you do good to everyone, right? So we're looking for opportunities to serve people, to do good to them. And that might look some of the same ways that we would do to unbelievers, but the, the depth of affection goes to the church, those who profess to believe. That's, that's, that's a reality. Now, how that plays out in practical, do you go ahead? I think, we're, I think the way I've said it in the past is we, we die for our brother and we serve our neighbors. I think that's, that's essential in the scriptures. So yeah, if you're looking for practicals, I'm not going to give practicals right now because I think some of, the, some of those things could look the same, but I think there is a reality where the depth of love that Jesus tells us we should have is that we're like one, that we're connected. He, doesn't, he never says be like that with the world. In fact, you look at John, 1 John 2, says do not love the world. I mean, a person who loves the world, so we have to be careful. You talk about 1 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So there is a distinction between your love for the world, non-Christians, versus your love, where you're supposed to be united, one with, 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 with believers. And with unbelievers, you have to be careful. That's a good question. All right, uh, here's another one. <clears throat> and I get a little bit of background to uh, fit the uh, context of the question. The two commandments that are most important are to love God and love others. If this is about loving humans, humans made in, in his image, then when we see that a particular group or ideology, though all are sinful, are consistently subjugating other image bearers, is it not appropriate then to challenge and resist them in fellow believers? Is that the end of the question? Sure, I think so. But I th So there's a couple things to that. One, the, the heart behind our challenge is what's at stake. So it's one thing to challenge people. It's another thing to be angry, judgmental, bitter, and name call them for, for doing certain things. So like, let me just give you an example. And, and you know I hate this term, and, but I think telling white people that they have white privilege and making them respond to that I think is unbiblical. I don't think that's the right challenge at all. I don't think that's a, so one, and then I think when we assume that we're not subjugating people, or people who subjugate people, we have to assume that it's individual. So we're talking about people, not a culture of people, unless we can prove that this culture of people is actually doing it. Being white doesn't make you automatically subjecting black people, and being black doesn't make you automatically prone to violence and criminality. Right? These are all these things that are just thrown on us, and we got to figure out, do we comply or not? I'm not complying with none of it. So I think if we're talking about how do we, do we challenge? Sure. But then I think we have to be careful with this, too. If we're challenging just that, then to what degree does that go? Is that just race? Do we challenge people who subjugate uh, uh, sex trafficking? Do we challenge people who subjugate the homeless or orphans? Or the, like we have to figure out where does that go, and this is where it becomes a problem. So one of the problems today is everyone is lathered up about race, right? But we're not going to eradicate the sin of racism. It doesn't mean we don't go after things, but it's like everyone has to focus on this. That's impossible. There's too many other things going on that affect too many other people. So, so, so a person who struggles with, who's been a, a girl who's in sex trafficking, would be like, hey, we're not going to focus on what happens to us. This is what the Me Too movement was about, right? 
Women don't get no play. When do we get a chance to say these things happen to us? And there was a period of time where everyone was like, all right, women now have actually a voice. People are listening, and now there are consequences for that. So again, sometimes we have to also, in challenging, make sure that we do it with the reality that, like, look, everyone is not going to be able to focus on the same thing. I think that's 1 Corinthians 12, the body, right? The hand can't say to the foot. They're going to be different desires. So we need people to go after, like, racism. We need people to go after sexism. We need Christians to go after abortion. We need Christians to go after criminal justice reform. We need Christians to be in politics. We need Christians to talk about orphanages. We need Christians to care about the homeless. We need Christians. God wants righteousness everywhere, but it's almost like we're trying to make righteousness only be in this one area. And if you're not in this one area, then you're not, you're not for the cause. And I don't think there's a biblical case for that. So I agree, yes, we do need to call people out who are unloving, but we got to be specific. It can't be unloving by, by affiliation in and of itself. Now, if you want to say we've inherited, people have inherited, then yeah, we've all inherited a gospel that hasn't, that hasn't glorified God the best that it could. And so it's incumbent upon us to figure out how do we restore God's glory? How do, how do we take the blasphemy from the, the Gentiles out of their mouths to demonstrate? And that's 1 Peter 2. He talks about it in 1 Peter 2, man, be, be, be good around these people. So then when they say something bad about you, they don't have nothing to say, really. That's for, I'm paraphrasing. That's not how God said it. But that's 1 Peter 2. That's 1 Peter 2. So that, that's, that's my answer to that. Thank you. Um, what do you think is necessary for cultivating a church culture that is zealous for God's glory and taking seriously the responsibility we have to consider one another? in order to stir uh, each other up to love and good I think applying this message. Yeah. I'm, and I'm being dead serious. Like, and I'm, I'm at fault. I'm, I'm the main teacher here, so I provide the diet and, and haven't really emphasized God's glory as much as I should have, and that's my fault. So I, 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 feel, that, I feel the sting of that. The Lord stung me with this, this, this series, this Stay Balanced series, this Josiah framework. To me, is a beautiful reality, but it also stung me because I'm the one who, is, who, who frames the teaching diet the last six years, I've been the primary one, Mike, Mike included. So Mike's not exempt either, but we, we, haven't, we just haven't focused on this as much. So part of that is on us, but part of it is on, is on us, is in all of us, to trust and believe what we read. Like, it's not like, it's not like we're not, the way things are today is not like it was back in the day, where there was no Bible, no literature, there were only parchments of Jesus' writings, the only people that had them were the highest uh, intellectuals or eventually pastors who had them, you have a Bible now. Like, so you're responsible for what you read in your Bible. Like, you only get from me or Mike on a Sunday, but you got Monday through Saturday that you're reading and praying. And you're, so I think we need to really say, you know, so we need to, first of all, we need to be honest and say, you know what? I don't think about this that much. Not that you don't agree with what was said, but you know what? I don't think like this. This is what the Lord has revealed. I was like, wow, Lord. I don't, I don't think about this that much. I don't think about your glory as much as I should. As much of the glory of God is all in the New Testament. It's just stuff I just, I just think about too much earthly stuff. And I don't mean like, I just mean stuff that like is good, but it's not necessarily like, man, God's glory. I'm not always, I am motivated by that, but sometimes I'm motivated by other things. And I want to be more motivated by that. So I need to meditate on what his glory is, meditate on the way it shaped me, meditate on the verses that we talked about today, and then actually sit down, think about it, and begin to make it a part of my routine as a believer to, to think about these things. Otherwise, they're just going to forget. 
you're going to forget. I mean, you're going to leave here and talk about who's hanging out and going to lunch. And, you know, you might have been on your phone during the message. Cool. But you're just going to forget. You're just going to, and that's just reality. We have to be aware of where we're human beings. Like, we're going to forget. So if I don't make it a part of who I functionally am, I'm going to forget about it. So I'm going to agree with it and like it. And then maybe someone will write, oh, yeah, I remember. I might go, do you go, do you take notes? Do you go back and look at your notes? Do you think, how do I apply this? I think this is huge. We're about to hit, we're in the fall, we're going to hit a, a cultural tsunami. Cultural tsunami. From October to the middle of November, it is going to be chaos. And then depending on what happens, it's going to be more chaos. Buckle up. But the way we buckle up is by praying up by thinking up, by reading up, by learning to love the people that we're around. I think we have to take this seriously. I think the Lord is allowing this stuff to happen from the virus to all this stuff to just be like, ah, we put so much confidence in all these things with the Lord. I love, we were so excited that Kanye West got saved last fall, and now you look at him and think, ooh, what's happening to this brother? <laughs> and I'm not saying that to make anybody laugh. I would hate to be in his position. That brother's in serious hell. But what I'm saying that to say this, we were looking at his life, we were all excited, and then you look at him less than a year later, and it's like, well, you're not, you can't put no confidence in that. We're always looking for someone famous to lead the way for us, and it's like, nah, God said, you lead the way. You lead the way. You pray. You do what you got to do, and I want to use you. I'll use Kanye. I'll use whoever's famous. I want to use you. And so I think we need to say, listen, Lord, you know, created me a heart that's clean. I want, I want to be used. I want to be useful to the master. It'll be useful in his hands. So I think the stuff I'm talking about is really taking seriously the stuff that we're, that we're teaching and not making excuses for things because we're anxious about COVID or whatever it is. Some of these things are just, we're just going to have to fight through them. Like, it's not like, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm exempt from obeying God because I'm struggling with filling the blank. Like, it doesn't work that way. And it's been, and, and many of us think it's been working and it's just not. So all these people, I, had a, I think uh, Mike said a, he, a brother came to him, a pastor, and they were talking, and he said there was a woman in his church that was about faith, 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 all this faith, always talking about faith, but will not come to church at all now because of the COVID. Now, he's not judging her. It's fine. We understand that. We're not judging nobody. It's fine. We're not, you know, I'm fine to walk through a process. We, talk, we talked about the psychological damage, but the point that he was making, though, was how strong she was talking about faith. You'd have thought she was the first woman in the building. And the people who had weaker faith than her is in the building, and she not. Talking about faith. So it's almost like he was saying, well, where's all of that? So again, we're, I'm not using that to indict anyone from our church. I'm making a point that sometimes we talk a good talk, and we don't always, aren't willing to walk that walk. And all of us struggle with it. Don't get, no, don't get me wrong. This is difficult. I'm not saying this is easy. That's not what I'm saying. I don't know anything about Christianity. It's easy. Whoever said it was easy ain't a believer. They're not really a believer. They're unregenerate because it ain't nothing to them. If you're really a Christian, you're like, man, this is work. People who watch me give sermons, they're like, man, I want to do that one day. This one is work. This one is work. That's why I sit down because I'll be sweating all over the place and be like, that's why I was like, man, if I sit, at least I can, don't sweat all over the place. It's work. It's work to just to, to, to think about what God is saying and they communicate that nonstop in a way that's engaging and all it's work, it's work. It's work to be a believer, but it's work that we've inherited because God chose us to. 
Because it's like if we had received an inheritance of 50 million, we'd still with that thing. We'd be thinking about who we buying for, what credit we paying off, all that. We'd get a financial advisor, all of it. Well, we have an advisor. We have all that stuff, but, this, but, the, but the, 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 what we've inherited is, is more eternal. And it requires faith, so we need to press in. Can I do two more questions? Sure. Sorry. This is my last one. You can do as many as you want. Okay. After this, <laughs> see you in September. <laughs> so uh, this person wants to know, is it, in, is it inappropriate to fast from social media uh, to be still and know that God is, to know God better and to over, practice overcoming sin? I think for many people, it's what is the most appropriate. I don't think it's inappropriate at all. I think for many of us, it should be the most appropriate. I definitely plan on stepping back because I'm not doing the podcast. I'm stepping back in, uh, from social media in, in August. I'm going to read more and type and tweet less. Well, I might tweet a little bit. That's just, but I'm definitely not going to be, I'm not going to be on Facebook. I like Twitter better these days. Facebook is too, they're too sensitive on Facebook. People are too emotional. Little Ralph Tresman out there, that man with sensitivity. They need some of that Ralph Tresman. But yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's not only, it's not inappropriate, I think it's most appropriate for many of us. Our digital nervous systems are a wreck. I'm reading this book called The Body Keeps the Score. You've heard me talk about this book plenty of times in the church, and there was this point that he says in the book. He says that since 2000, I'm paraphrasing, he says since 2010, antidepressants in America have uh, Triple, like the, the amount of usage of them have tripled, right? And he said, and he said, because anxiety and depression has tripled. Well, I forgot the number. The way he said it was, was much better than I am. But his point was this if these drugs in and of themselves are, are working, then why is it tripling? Why aren't people more less depressed than they were 10 years ago? His point is there's actually more anxiety and more depression than 10 years ago. So there's more drugs on the market than there were 10 years ago because no one's really being affected by these drugs for the most part. Now I'm not, don't hit me and be like, well, are you saying? That's not what I'm saying. I'm making a point that he's making is that our society is a wreck. And part of it, I think, is we have digital nervous systems that affect us. You know, I've high school kids committing suicide because somebody didn't post something on Facebook that they didn't like that ruined their reputation. I mean, many of you just did, whatever it is, stuff that's just like crazy. Social media, or somebody put this on Instagram, and it, which is, or, or so, somebody made a TikTok video about whatever it is. You know, at least Snapchat stuff disappeared, you know. These things just, so I think, I think it's most appropriate for many of us to say, you know what, let me chill. Even if it's for a couple of days, let me, let me get my digital nervous system right and make sure that I can just handle, and, I'm not, and I don't even mean like I'm anxious or depressed, I just mean I'm too drawn to it. Yeah. I'm just too drawn to it. I know I can just be drawn to it. I get a lot of notifications. Oh, let me check this real quick. I have to be like, nah, I'm, I'm leaving my phone in my office, or I'm turning it upside down. Then I feel the vibration, let me just check this real quick. Let me just, no, it's just like, you know what? I just think we all need to do that, to be honest, and spend more time with the Lord, praying and reading meditating on these questions and really thinking about and taking seriously, this is what it means to fulfill the law of Christ. This is what it means to, to obey the Lord. I want to actually take this seriously. And it made me to say, to do that, I need to remove myself from social media or from streaming shows every night, four or five episodes. Of I mean, we're all guilty of it. It's just we're bored. 
We're just bored. It doesn't cure our boredom. <laughs> it just makes us crave more of it. So that's what I would say. I think we should do it more. All right. Uh, lastly, um, lastly uh, this question humbly and honestly transparently says, I don't really care um, and I'm not involved with any political stuff. I am ignorant in that aspect. I don't feel any conviction about it. Is that bad slash unbiblical? No. I don't think, you're talking about affiliation and politics? No. Listen, <laughs> politics is a social construct yes. in America. It is a governing system that we, because we're Americans, we, has what was created before us. It's not biblical. There are Christians who are in regimes that they don't have the right to vote. There are Christians that are in totalitarian regimes that are glorifying the Lord without being able to go to the ballots and be a democratic society. So politics as an, as an institution is a social construct that we have access to and to some people a responsibility to participate in. It is not biblical. It is, in fact, I think the scripture tells us change ultimately comes from faith and repentance in Jesus. But because the church hasn't historically made that clear, we've looked to unregenerate people who don't love Jesus for change to come about. Amen. And so I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying, I'm saying that's, a, that's a cultural context we live in. Take advantage of it. Do it. But, when we put, but a lot of us put more hope in that. We need to get these people in because if not, then they're going to. And what we're really doing is legi we want legislation for a lack of suffering. The American church wants to have legislation prevent us from suffering. That's not bad in and of itself, but I think it's caused us to put our confidence and our hope in primaries and different things and, and all that because we care about that and we just sadly don't care about that as a church as much as we could or should because that's our responsibility. So I don't think it's wrong to not have a political inkling or care about it at all. I think if you're saying I don't care about people, well, that's different. But if you're just talking about the institution of politics, which is just the voting, thinking about candidacies, watching that stuff, I don't think it's unbiblical at all. I, I dare anyone to find me a verse that says you're supposed to, to, to do that stuff. This is an American social construct, and it's a good one. I'm not saying it's bad, and there are other nations in the world that do it. But it's not, if you don't vote, you're not a non-Christian. It's not like you're disobeying the Lord. Like, prove that to me from the Scriptures. I'm saying do it. I'm not saying do it because people get all offended. Like, well, what does that mean? Okay, well, I, I trust God's sovereignty. And if, you know, I mean, for real, well, I don't want to even get into that. I was going to talk about the Electoral College and stuff, but I ain't even going to get into that because I, that's not what this is. All right, I don't even want, I'm, I'm trying to leave on a good note. So I, I just, I think, I don't think it's unbiblical to not, to not vote. I think we have to be, we just have to be careful of our own hearts. Amen. I'm not saying you're, at, whoever asked this question, I'm not, uh, just make sure you're not self-righteous towards people who care about it. Make sure you're not unloving towards people who care about it. Because even though I'm trying to protect our church and don't want our church, not like protect our church like all this is happening, but I, but I know I see what's coming. I'm hearing from other places. Our church is wonderfully in a good place in, in many ways, but I see what's coming. I see it. And, I, and I'm always going to say what I see. A shepherd looks for the wolf coming to the sheep. Just because the sheep don't see the wolf doesn't mean the shepherd doesn't. And me and Mike, we see the wolves. And, I'm, and by default, I'm my, my responsibility is to look and see what's coming. I'm always going to say I see a wolf 
And I'm going to always prepare our church for it. And if I'm wrong, so be it. I'd rather be wrong thinking it was a wolf and it was actually a dog. I'd rather be wrong than think like that ain't no wolf and then we start getting bit and ate up. So that's what I would think about politics. Good, vote, be a part of it. If it's not a conviction for you, I don't think it's sinful. And don't let anybody tell you that it is. People may give you their preference. They may give you reasons why they think it's important. And, that, and all of those things are true, but it doesn't have to be true for you in the sense that it's biblical. So I'm not, again, I'm not advocating don't vote. But what is that? How can we do that? Part of doing good to all could be voting. There's some, there's some things that do good to all, but, but, then, but then there's going to be somebody else who says that's not good. You know, there are those of us who think abortion is bad and we want judges to end abortion. There's going to be people. So, again, I think doing good to all has to be more personal, communal, and then the national. And voting is very much a part of that. But what I don't want is Christians to think that voting is somehow God's will. Like that that's God's work. Voting has somehow been replaced God's work. Politics is somehow God's work. No, it's not. No, it is not. That's not God's work. It's a social construct in which God sovereignly can work through. That's not the work of the church is to make sure we vote for the right people. That's not the work of the church. That's not the mission of the church. That's not even the morality of the church. And what's happened is we've become so theopolitical that the mission of politics and the morality of it is sort of who we have become. And this is why we're saying stay balanced. Stay balanced. doesn't matter who you vote for. It matters who you vouch for. If you don't vouch for Jesus in this life and people who don't, they're not going, he's not going to vouch for them in the next life. And that is the most scariest thing ever. To hear, depart from me, I never knew you, will be words that every time they're uttered from his lips will be the ultimate destruction and devastation for anyone who's on the receiving end of those words. I don't want to be, I don't want anyone in my church to be, and as best as I can, I'm going to fight the people that I love both current believers and unbelievers are not in that way. So, that's it. Yep, that's it, brother. Uh, enjoy the Solid Rock Church, I love you deeply. It has been a privilege to spend these last five months walking through COVID and all this stuff. And I will, Lord willing, I will be back in September, first, first Sunday of September. I will be right here with hopefully a nice word from the Lord. I will pray for you. I will miss you guys, sort of. And uh, now I'm always going to miss you guys, but not to the point where I ain't taking no sabbatical. That's for certain. Lastly, happy birthday to the woman, one of the 19 people who started this church. Rowena start, helped, was a part of 19 people that started Solid Rock Church so that Black people would be allowed to come to a church because the church that she was in at the time did not want black people there. So she left with 19 other people and started what will become Solid Rock Church. And I'm privileged to be the first black lead pastor in here. And it is her birthday. So Rowena, happy birthday to you. Many of us call Rowena Mike, Mike Fleischman. I call her Rowena. And I'm just so grateful for you. You helped start something. And I hope you are. And you can confess to me. Tell me this that you're proud of the legacy of this church. This church is a part of the legacy that you have created, and so we're grateful for you. So happy birthday, Rowena. All right, having said that, love you, Solid Rock Church. Those of you who are in here, thanks for hanging out. Thanks for coming. And I will personally see you in September. All right?